In the 110 years of the Hurling and Football Championships, only one senior All-Ireland final has ever been played outside Ireland, and it happened on this day exactly half a century ago when Cavan and Kerry played at the Polo Grounds in New York. An extraordinary decision by the GAA and controversial. So how come the showpiece of the football season was taken across the Atlantic? The late John Kerry O'Donnell was even then an influential figure in the New York GAA and he got the germ of an idea when the 46 final ended in a draw. See, most of the things in which I was involved would be a story in itself, like that All-Ireland. It was the first after a period of ten or whatever number of years and I went over to see it. And on the bus at Glenigald, I got on to go to Tralee, and who was in the bus but Paddy Kennedy, Lord Tamerson and Paddy. And he said, where are you going? I said, where the hell do you think I'm going? But to the All-Ireland. Oh, he says, it's called off. I thought he was putting me on, as the Yang says. But he was telling the truth. He says, the bad harvest. He says, pointing to the lowlands and winds of hay and water up halfway and the winds of hay. Mm-hmm. And I had to come back without seeing the All-Ireland. The All-Ireland was a draw, and I immediately got in touch with Cannon Hamilton for the replay. We didn't want the All-Ireland, just the replay. That, that was the 46 Kerry Roscommon replay. That's right, that's right. Yeah. It was a draw, yeah. and I asked for the replay. I see. And Cannon got in touch with me and said, sorry, they arranged that evening after the match that the replay would be in two weeks or whatever it was. So that... Uh, I only asked for the replay of the game. Over the winter, John O'Donnell and Canon Hamilton of Clare, a friend of the New York GA, were in constant contact, and eventually the Canon was to propose the motion at the following year's Congress, asking for the final to go to America. But he couldn't get to the early session in the Dublin City Hall because of parochial duties on Easter morning. So a good friend of his, Sean Clancy, asked the GA authorities if the cannon could be heard later in the day and it was agreed that the motion would be taken in the evening session which would be in Croke Park after a postponed Railway Cup final. But the news that greeted the cannon when he got to Croke Park wasn't encouraging. About half time, Cannon Hamilton arrived from Clare and uh, he joined us on the Hogan stand. And we told him what the feeling was among the delegates of the Congress and among the people at the match, and we advised him that there was no hope of getting the motion through, that everybody seemed to be against it. And at that stage, several people approached the cannon and apologised to him for not being in a position to support him. And I remember one in particular, uh, uh, Mr Gardner, Seamus uh, Gardner, he was afterwards president of the association, and I can recall the words that he, he said. He said, look, Hannans, he said, I supported you all in the past in the great things you have done for the association, but I cannot support you in this motion. And as a friend and a relative of the Canons, did you try and persuade him as well I to did. withdraw? I did. I suggested to him that he might withdraw the motion. Mm. He wouldn't hear of it. He said, the motion is going through. Well, did you get a big shock then when nearly everybody at Congress voted for it? Well, yes. First of all, I was not a delegate. And at the time I was sitting on the stand with a friend of mine, Father Johnny Moynihan. He was a parish priest somewhere outside Nina at the time. And both of us were in the same position. We were not delegates. But when Paddy O'Keefe joined us later, I said to Paddy, 
uh, is, is there any hope of getting in to hear the debate and the motion? We are, Johnny and myself are not delegates, I said. And he immediately put his hand in his pocket and he took out two delegates, passes, <laughs> and handed them to us. And he said, look, he said, vote for the motion. It's going to be heavily defeated <laughs> anyhow, he said, and I hate to see the cannon humiliated. Right. So in we went to the Congress, and there was only standing room there. It's a pack. It's not a big area anyhow. So there were no facilities under the Hogan stand for a gathering like that? No, and uh, there wasn't a big gathering there. Mm. I suppose some of the delegates had gone home. But in any case, the president called on the cannon to propose the motion. And I think he spoke for about 20 minutes without notes or scripts or anything else. And he gave his reasons for having the, the match played in New York. And he finished his speech, I can remember it very well, by saying, none of you here to me, listening to me here this evening, uh, uh, has, every one of you here this evening that I'm, uh, that's listening to me said, has some relative in the New York area, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, or some relative. And he said, are you going to deny them this little bit of Ireland? They'll never see their homeland again. And are you going to deny them this bit of Ireland in their area in which they're living? Honestly, I, I could see tears in some of the eyes <laughs> delegates. And I could see a change coming over the gathering. And that's the line on which he finished his speech. Now the question was, would it be feasible to examine all the implications the GAA immediately sent their General Secretary, Porrig O'Keefe, and Tom Kilcoyne of the Connacht Council to New York? And late in May, they were back in Dublin to present their findings to a special meeting of the Central Council. And a young delegate at that meeting was Paddy McFlynn, then representing his native Derry. I always remember we went early and uh, to avoid the press, and we held this uh, private meeting, and there was a long discussion and... Uh, uh, whether they should go or not. And uh, uh, I remember that uh, uh, some people were for and some against. And interestingly enough, one of their problems was travel. A lot of them felt that travel by plane, aeroplane, was at that time was very dangerous. But in any case, uh, the, a vote was taken, and by a very small majority, it was decided against going to America with the final. Uh, then the press were allowed in, and we started off again, and then I think one of the things that changed it round a bit was that Dan O'Rourke, whose son was playing on the Roscommon team, he said, no son of mine will fly to America, or something like this, and uh, inferring that Roscommon are going to be Cavan. And I think maybe some of the Ulster delegates, I can't even remember myself whether I changed over, but I know some of the uh, changed over sufficiently. The first result was narrow, and the second one, I think there was about three votes in it, deciding to go to America. So there were actually two decisions, one in camera and, 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 and a change vote afterwards. Yes, and of course, I always remember the face of, uh, God rest, uh, the president, uh, Dan O'Rourke, his face, uh, he didn't know what, he was absolutely perplexed, he didn't know when, what to do then, and he couldn't do anything with the press present, the decision had been made, and that had to be accepted. And was there not any protest from the people who had voted against earlier in the previous vote that a second vote shouldn't be taken? No, because, you see, as far as we we're concerned, no meeting had taken place, you see. It was we informal, couldn't, uh, was we, it? We couldn't sort of uh, expose our, our, this to the press that we'd already made a decision gone against it. Uh, and uh, there was a, a sort of a long pause when, and much uh, heads getting together at the top table to see where we went from there. But anyhow, that was the decision. 
And in fact, there was a lot of opposition to it at the time because I've seen from the newspapers at the time a lot of counties tried to get the decision rescinded afterwards. Oh yes, there was a lot, a lot of, a lot of people kicking up about taking this to America and all Ireland. Uh, you know the usual that all Ireland was uh, the biggest day of the GA calendar has been taken to America, but uh, they persisted anyhow. And then, of course, we everybody enjoyed the old executive that time. They all went and en masse, They all went. Uh, God rest Martin O'Neill was the he was referee, referee and uh, the lanesman was of course or the one of the umpires was Jerry Arthur's now. We all saw the little snip you get of the match where Jerry is smiling broadly uh, with a white flag up showing that Cavanagh scored a point at some stage. And do you think this was what would now be called trips for the boys? Oh, yes, well, I mean, they all... Uh, and some of them had been very vehemently opposed to the going yeah. to America, but they, they accepted the little trip when it came up, you know. So the GAA was now committed to playing the final in New York, but how were the teams to get there in days when transatlantic travel was still only reopening a year and a half after the World War? Flying was regarded as hazardous, and delegates weren't anxious to risk sending the teams by air. But the Kerry delegate that night was Michal O'Rourke, and he persuaded them to use a plane. And I remember I stood up and I said that this occasion. Okay. Remember that Shannon at the time was only in its infancy, and I said that... Here we were now the principal uh, um, sporting organisation in Ireland and we're, we're advocating people to use Shannon and here we are and we wanted the team or a portion of the team. They were, they were kind of afraid of sending the team by plane. Half could only go on the boat and the liner. Now if there was room on the liner that, uh, the, the match would have been played without question. So... Uh, one or two that had, especially I remember the Donegal delegate that voted against it, they voted for it out, uh, as a result of my plea. On the Easter weekend that Congress made the historic decision, both Cavan and Kerry, by a remarkable coincidence, were together in London for what was an annual bank holiday match in those days at Mitcham Stadium. Mick Higgins of Cavan remembers bidding goodbye to the Kerry players. Uh, that's right. We got a big surprise when we heard it over there uh. I remember saying to some of the boys, we'll be meeting in New York, we'll see you again <laughs> over there. But just as a joke, little did we ever think that the two teams would be travelling to New York in the following October, September. Because, in fact, Antrim were the Ulster champions at the time. Yeah, the previous year, Antrim beat us. And uh, in 1947, it's nearly like the present year with Cavan, we were outsider all the time. Mm. But what Antrim... And, probably forgot was we never trained for an Ulster final and uh, we always trained for the semi-final collective training and for the final if you got there but uh, as this trip to New York was coming up we went into training for the first time ever for an Ulster final first and only time I think and we were a, super, were a very fit team we were, and I think we caught Antrim on the hop yeah. and uh, we started off, we were leading them about 12 pints to four at one stage, and they came back to within four pints of us. Right. But the, the training made a big difference to us. Soon the race for places in the final and that trip to New York began in earnest, and Kerry were the defending champions when they had their almost inevitable meeting with Cork in the Munster final, a match in which the great full-back Joe Kehan played an unusual part in preventing a penalty goal for Cork. I think we were never more, more, more determined to win an All Ireland, at least to get to an All Ireland final. 
the outcome was not, I won't say we were indifferent to the outcome because most of us had three or four all Ireland at the time, five perhaps, but as that, I, I mean, I was accused of a, I give an example now of the determination we had, the way that the most innocent conduct can be misconstrued. We played Cork in the Munster final that year, and it was a dreadful day in the, it's now Parky Creeve, it used to be the athletic grounds that time, and uh, it was very close. Matter of fact, the former Taoiseach of our country, Mr Lynch, was playing that day right foot forward. So uh, towards the finish, it was, I think we were down two points. No, sorry, we were winning by two points, that was it. And Jackie Lyon literally picked the ball up out of the square and Simon Dighton was refereeing and he immediately blew for a penalty. So uh, I told Jackie this day down because I thought Jackie was badly injured. I think you could kick Lyon in the head at any place, you wouldn't badly injure him, he was so hard and tough. But anyway, I went out and I remonstrated with, with Dighton and it wasn't a penalty. And inadvertently I put my foot on the ball. Now the ground was so soft that the ball actually sunk, you know, and I was so vehement in my protest that I wasn't aware of this at all. So a lot of people, anyway, Jim Ahern, Father Jim Ahern, James is out in Los Angeles now, very f dear friend of mine, very fine footballer, he was a wonderful footballer. Jim went to kick the penalty, but now you'd want the KCP to get the ball out of the ground at this stage, you know. <laughs> Put down on our rest, he saw was in goals, and there was a shower of mud and dirt and stones. <laughs> he nearly blinded him. The ball trickled in. Now, I, I, people have said it was deliberate, but I mean, how do you fool, as I said, 25,000 Corkmen, and they're looking at you? Yeah. And a future Prime Minister just shoulder to shoulder with me, you know? So that was, we, we, that was one way of getting over, or at least getting on the boat yeah. or a plane, whatever it was, to the United States. By the time July was out, four remained in contention. Kerry and Munster, Roscommon from Connacht, Mead the winners in Leinster and Cavan who'd taken the Ulster title. And Cavan were in the first All-Ireland semi-final in August against Roscommon, a game for which they were particularly psyched up, as Peter Donoghue, their ace free-taker, recalls. Oh yes, there was great excitement all over the county and... Uh when of course the match against Roscommon was a, a real, uh, well, it was a real exciting uh, part for Cavan football because Roscommon had beaten Cavan on the previous couple of times they met, including that infamous 43 <laughs> final. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we had a real score to settle with Roscommon, and uh, apart from that, like there was great support in the county for for the team at the time. The prize of a trip to New York generated additional excitement in the big games that summer and a record crowd of 60,000 saw Cavan easily beat Roscommon and Peter Donoghue score one of the goals. And a week later, that attendance record was topped when 66,000 turned up to see Kerry play Mead and win comfortably. And then the intense preparations for the trip began. Smallpox vaccinations had to be got, passports and visas obtained. And a decision had to be made about who would travel on the limited accommodation available by boat. Simon Dignan remembers how Cavan decided. Well, it didn't create much of a problem. Uh, I think that those in charge in Cavan at the time were afraid that uh, uh, it, it would have affected our results had we got all this thing done before we uh, qualified. But uh, as it turned out, on the evening of the All-Ireland semi-final last year, we all went and got this job done. On the Sunday night? On the Sunday yeah, night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On the Sunday night. Anything that wasn't done on the Sunday night was done on Monday morning. Yeah. And that, that, that would be going to the embassy for the visas that's and that. That's true, yeah. That's true, yeah. So what about then when you came along to... Uh, some of you 
flew. Most of you flew, in fact. Some of you went by uh, boat, but you were one of the ones who went by plane. Well, and is it true to say that none of you would ever have been in a plane before, Kerry or Cabin? I think that's fair comment. Yeah. Uh, but a, a definite decision was taken by the Cabin County Board that the players would uh, stay, the actual phys- 15 players on the team would uh, go by plane and the, the subs would all go by boat. And was there a reason? Was, was that because they wanted to give you an extra week training, or what? Oh, without any doubt, yeah. yeah. Without any doubt, I suppose. As well as that, uh, they had greater control over us. <laughs> Why were well, you the type that needed it? <laughs> well, I suppose some of us were. Yeah. Some of us were, but we said enough for prayers on the way over to win not several Hot Islands. I can assure you. And for those who flew over, not only was it the first time in an aeroplane, it turned out to be one of the longest, most arduous journeys by air. A full 29 hours. Peter Donoghue again. We, we didn't expect it to be that long. First there was a delay in taking off, of course, and then uh, that bled us, left us a bit more nervous. And then, of course, we, we said a few prayers and different things on the way. And then the, the, the touchdown at there is over so off the yeah, coast of, of Portugal, and that was exciting in itself, yeah. you know. Of course, they don't go that way at all. No, then. but it's a beautiful uh, scene, the, all the lights at night and everything like that. And, of course, from that then into Gander, Newfoundland which in itself was something different anyway. And then into Boston, and from that then to New York. One of the journalists who covered that historic final was the late Mitchell Cogley, the sports editor of the Irish Independent. I wasn't a bit nervous about it. I had done a fair bit of flying. Nothing as long as this, not, never across the Atlantic. But I had done a fair bit of flying. But Michael, strangely enough, was very nervous. Very nervous. And uh, his mother, when we were leaving the house, his mother, his mother came and sprinkled us and the car with some holy water just to make sure that everything was all right and uh, that was it was a great trip great trip although very long there were so many people on the on the uh, on the airliner there was there was um, the the whole cabin team or at least a, a large party of the footballers mostly cabin and the, the whole cabin lot i think and a few carry men and um, the various people traveling with them and also an awful lot of luggage and that meant that we the, the uh, direct flight was out of the question. We had to go down to the Azores, first up for refueling, then up to Gander in New, Newfoundland for more fueling, and we even had to stop off. I think he ran out, and we had to stop off then at Boston, an unscheduled stop, I believe, uh, into, into Boston for more, and then down to New York. So it took a long, long time, and we were calling. We'd went by TWA, <laughs> We were calling, the, the lads were all saying the name of TWA went, try walking across. Six days earlier, a party of 25 had left Ireland by boat on the SS Mauritania from Cove. The group included seven players from each county along with officials. One of these was Michal O'Rourke. I was Joint Secretary of the Kerry County Board with Jerry Miles and Jerry asked me, did I want to go on by boat or by plane? Now, I knew that Jerry had, had used the plane flying out to the Channel Islands for health reasons and liked it. So I said, uh, how do you want to go? And he said, by plane. I said, that's all right. So I said, that suits me. I'll go by boat because I'd be going away about six days before the team. But anyway, I went home anyway and I told my mother that I was going by boat. Oh, thank God, so she... Is more respectable to be drowned than to be burned. That journey by ship was a very relaxed way to cross the Atlantic, and the holiday-like trip is fondly recalled by the Kerry Centre half-forward Dan Cavanagh. Holiday, 
Yeah. It was every bit of a holiday. I mean, was there no serious training or anything like that? Ah, well, what could you, what could you do on the boat? Yeah. We, we didn't misbehave, and we there was no way you could train. But the, there was one thing, talking about the boat, that the group of us that went, they were mainly the Dingle group, yeah. Uh, plus uh, Paddy Kennedy and then O'Keefe. There was John Joe Sheehy, Michal or John Joe was chairman of the selection mm-hmm. committee. Michal, I think, was secretary of probably the county board maybe at that time. But uh, I remember him being going along uh, on, on, the, on the boat uh, after two mornings. You know, everybody was worried about seasickness, you know, and all the rest of it. But we were surviving every morning in for breakfast and we couldn't get enough. <laughs> and there was, there was a stage, I think, about the second day out to sea. We were the only we were the only table in the in the in the dining room for breakfast really? in the morning. Well, we were all we were all dingle men. I know. know. So you were used men. to the sea. Yeah, we were used to the sea. Yeah, we were we were there. I remember I was living in Killarney at mm. the time, you know, and I was being picked up by the dingle car coming through, and I went down to a pub where we used to Charlie Foley's pub in Killarney, wait, waiting for the dingle car to arrive, and they said goodbye. And uh, we had a christening actually the day before. Yeah. The day before I left, and I had to come back because there was no sign of the car arriving <laughs> from Dingle. And I went back down again to Charlie's Volley's about half eleven, and that's the time the car arrived and went over the county bounds on on into Cove. Right. How did they pick the people to go by boat? What? I think the option was probably there yeah. for anybody who really wanted to go yeah. and. Uh, uh, I'd imagine that was it, but what surprised me that there was a pretty big number from Cavan yeah. as well, you know, that yeah. came through the chairman, chairman right. and secretary That's of the right. Cavan County Board, Patsy Lynch, and the secretary, Huey Smith, I think. Yeah, yeah. they travelled as well, and about six or seven of the Cavan team were yeah. on that trip. Well, did you fraternise with them now, the fact that you were uh, going very, to meet them all in the final? Very much, but I, very, very much, but I would say more so... More so on the on, on the way home, really. Right. We were all one. We came back uh, on the Queen Mary, yeah. and we came back to Southampton. Right. You know? yeah. But really, really, we were all one very big happy family, I must say, you know, on the way home, you know, very much so. But when the teams arrived in New York, they dispersed to separate hotels, and it was quite late in the week when they got their first look at the polo grounds, a very strange sight according to Kerry's Bat Garvey. No grass and it had a, b- a big mound in the centre. Yeah, was that upsetting? Well, it was upsetting, very upsetting, because uh, the ground was rock hard, and uh, the uh, football boots, as you know, we used at that time, were football boots with the studs driven in, three nails in the stud, and driven into the sole of the shoe, or of the boot, and... Uh, I think I lost three studs in the polo grounds. The ground was so hard. So it, it must have been very difficult to play then on it. Well, I, it was, it was nearly impossible. Like in comparison with Croke Park, there was no, no comparison between it and Croke Park. On the other hand, Peter Donoghue of Cavan had a very different opinion of the stadium. Well, it was something different anyway, but. Um well, I don't know. You see, when you play football, club football in Cavan and and even in Dublin, you come across some funny pitches. You do, and uh, F- funny what way? <laughs> well, they're a bit uneven and they're a bit, uh, you know. Uh, I suppose the polo grounds uh, 
It wouldn't be Crow Park, that's for sure. But I mean, it, it, was, it probably was better than the average pitch down the country at the time. You know? I mean, the average pitch down the country wouldn't have these sandy uh, runways for the base runners, or oh, it well, certainly I mean, wouldn't have the mound. There was a mound there, all right, but you know what I mean, you could always watch out for it. It, was, <laughs> it didn't upset you too much. Well, at least you saw it much easier than you'd see a hole in the ground. <laughs> You know, whatever difficulties the players may have thought they'd encounter, one of the key figures out for the final got a terrible shock when he visited the stadium, the late Michael O'Hare. I began to realise that my being in New York wasn't just a skite for Michael O'Hare, that in fact I was the representative of the tens of thousands of people who normally would be at the All-Ireland here in Ireland. And I wanted to see that everything was right. Well, it went down to the ground and was amazed to see the baseball diamond and the hump on the ground, if you like, which is used for the pitcher. It was there, uh, not exactly part of a, a GAA ground, but it was in front of one goal and one half, with one team playing with the mound and vice versa in the second half. But the big problem about this visit to the polo grounds was that when I checked with the local caretaker, he knew nothing about a broadcast. He showed me the booth from which the broadcasts were done when there was baseball there. There were no wires, there was nothing. And I began to get just a little bit worried about it all. We made a few phone calls. The people in the polo grounds were of tremendous assistance. But nobody in the telephone department, no radio people, nobody knew anything about a broadcast. However, after a worrying 24 hours, Michael's problems were sorted out. Eventually, the big day arrived and 35,000 people were in the stands. Not as big a crowd as might be expected, you'd think. Listen to Paddy McMahon, who was on the organising committee and later to be a president of the New York GAA. It would be small under ordinary circumstances. But as I say, immigration had, had... There was no immigration at all during the 30s because of the Depression. There was no jobs here, so there was nothing to come to. And then, uh, being involved in World War Two in the early 40s, between 41 and 45, there was no immigration at all. So that when people... And uh, games that, were, the, that we were played here in, in Gaelic Park at the time, they only attracted in those days about maybe 200 people because the... the teams had disbanded and competition was poor and uh, the, there was no attendance so when you take all those things into consideration then that was a fairly good crowd the hush immediately before they played the national anthem they played the two anthems they played the Irish anthem and they played the American anthem but the, when we stood for the Irish anthem there was a tremendous roll of drums and it was announced the, the Irish national anthem and there was an extraordinary the whole place. The place had been a buzz with excitement and everything. And then there was an extraordinary hush, and it was played and sung, as well as I'd ever heard it sung anywhere. Then the game was on, and Kerry got off to an explosive start. So they came out full of bounce, like you know, not like the usually when Kerry walk onto Croke Park. Of course, they're so used to it, I suppose. They saunter on, don't they? they there's no kind of galumphing onto the field like celebrating the occasion of being in Croke Park, like most teams do when they're there for the first time, and understandably. But with Kerry, normally their their approach is very mo moderate. They they come out and it's just another match for them, another finalist, so to speak. But they this was different. They came out full of bounce and. Uh, they were into their, into their stride like a flash. 
Pat Garvey got a goal and uh, Gigo O'Connor got a goal and got a couple of points. Eight points up in, in before before Cavan scored. We were outplayed everywhere. We were more or less... You couldn't describe it. You begin to wonder how we ever got there. I'd say the spectators thought to themselves, how the hell did this crowd get out? So uh, all of a sudden we settled down a bit. They were leading us eight points to two at one stage. and They went nine-two then and they had a goal disallowed. So... uh, we got a couple. We got a, uh, for the first two points when we got the ball up. I thought we, if we got enough of the ball, we could get within scoring di- distance of them. And uh, shortly afterwards, coming up to near half time, Eddie Downing went up for a high ball. He was having a brilliant match for Kerry in the middle of the field, centre field, and he went up for a high ball and overbalanced and came down on the hard ground and <clears throat> dislocated his shoulder and he was taken off. So I'd say that could have helped us. We got a grip on the game then, uh, around the middle of the field. And the longer it was going on, the more we were scoring and the better we were getting. Cavan had a very bad start. Uh, it was just nothing went right for them in the in the first uh, ten minutes or so, and uh, we we did feel a bit down. But once or twice the ball came up. And we could see that the Kerry defence weren't that uh, confident. You know, they, they seemed a bit shaky. And uh, like when Tony Tay or, or Higgins got the ball, like they seemed to be a bit at sixes and sevens. And we just knew, like that, we were fit enough that if we just got the breaks, that like we, we had a good chance of staying in the game. You know, and that's really what happened. We just took whatever chances came. We didn't panic, or we didn't start looking for goals when there was points to be taken. You know, and. Um, it was a, a thing. We, we, we. Dan O'Keefe had a brilliant. I mean, he saved a few shots that day that you know nobody would have saved. Well, now you yeah. mentioned goals, but what about uh, Kerry? Still remembered that they had two of them disallowed. I suppose you would have to say uh, uh, Kerry could feel a bit hard done by maybe with one of them. All right, but uh, well, it happens, and we same thing happened to us in the forty-five Isle Island. We got a goal, and it's where we were disallowed. You know. And, these things happen. Uh, I think that uh, all in all, Kerry really should have held on to their big lead. But the memory of the scores Kerry didn't get still lingers with Eddie Dowling and their captain, Dinny Lyon. I won't go back into the referee. He had a different view of it. <laughs> what do you mean he had a different view of it? He, he, he disallowed a couple of goals, yes, I know. Right, right, that's right, which I think were very fair goals. Anyway, but there's no good. We were leading, leading by so much at that stage. He said he wanted to make a match, but whether that's true or not, I don't know. Made a match the wrong way for us. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know, I think he's all right. I tell you a story now. I was at a pub in my own home. I live a half a mile outside Killarney, and I got a phone call to come down to a pub John Brown was a bit, you remember John Brown? He was a traveller for some place here, and he was after moving to Wexford. And he had a, a Wexford man with me, and the Wexford man wanted to see me, so I came down to the pub to him. And the one thing the Wexford man conveyed to me, he said that he was talking to Martin O'Neill, and he said, if we meet Dinny Lane, he said, and we'll go to Killarney, just when they're counting up all Ireland's. They have one at at the polo grounds. <laughs> That's what the man from Wexford told me anyway. Well, you got two goals very early on, so you must have been fairly confident that after that great start you'd win it. 
I mean, we were certain we'd win it after that, of course, but that's the way to go on tour. This allowed us a big break. Just a hard break, hard break altogether. In my view, there was no goal disallowed. Why, why do you say that? If the ref, Martin O'Neill, took down the scores as they came, the match would have ended in a draw. Mm. Four goals and five points to two goals and 11, 17 points each. Right. That was the actual score on the day. You see, the goals weren't disallowed. Yes. Bat Garvey scored his second goal after a great solo run. And he told me afterwards that no bag touched him. Mm. And he thought he was pushed for overhauling and it would be a free out. Instead, the ref gave a free in, which the guy and the lot of us pointed. Yes, yes. So... That we got a point instead of a goal. You understand? Yeah. So, a few minutes after, the same thing happened to the Yaya himself. He scored the goal himself, and the ball was right back, and he pointed another three. So, actually, he gave us two points, yeah. and he took four <laughs> points oh. off us, <laughs> which was exactly what Captain won by. Yeah. Now, there was another, another goal then, and you scored it. Yeah, I'm well, and, that, and yeah. that that one was allowed. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming to that one. <laughs> Few, little later, I scored the fourth goal, yeah. and the ref happened to be feeling good that time, and he marked it. <laughs> <laughs> so were the goals or not? The referee, as you heard, was the secretary of the Leinster Council, the late Martin O'Neill. No, should it, no, should it, the rule is quite clear there. In fact, I see now in uh, what you meant in. Uh, Football immortals. I Raymond, see where uh, her friend Raymond um, had that uh, advantage rule again raised his ugly head. Yeah. But Raymond Smith should know that there is no such thing as an advantage rule when the whistle blows. Yeah. That stops everything. That stops play. Even with this setback, Kerry still dominated most of the first half, due mainly to the great display by Eddie Dowling. But then everything changed dramatically, as Mick Higgins says. Shortly afterwards, coming up to near half-time, Eddie Dowling went up for a high ball. He was having a brilliant match for Kerry in the middle of the field, centre field, and he went up for a high ball and overbalanced and came down on the hard ground and <clears throat> dislocated his shoulder and he was taken off. So I'd say that could have helped us. We got a grip on the game then, uh, around the middle of the field. And The longer it was going on, the... The more we were scoring and the better we were getting. The full-back placed the ball in the 21-yard line and he kicked it out the opposite side away from me. Mm. As you know, I was playing midfield. Mm. And I says, well, the same now for who kicked it, I ain't going to get it. And that's what knocked me out to get that idea. I crashed the field, made a mighty jump for the ball, caught it and was a bit overbalanced. The ball was gone a bit beyond me. I pulled it down to my chest and somersaulted in the mid-air and hopped my head off the ground. The ground was rock hard, and my he- head came out second best. <laughs> I knocked myself out stone cold and spent a week in St Mary's Hospital in Brooklyn. So Kerry's grip on the game began to loosen, and the Cavan selectors made a switch which further undermined Kerry's supremacy. Simon Dagnan. They moved 
PJ Duke back into his normal position. Yeah, that, that was his natural position, wasn't that it? That was his natural position. Yeah. The, the three of us, apparently, in the half-back line, we got on very well together. That was... And as soon as he moved back, apparently he closed the gap. Yeah, yeah. That was yourself and the late John Joe John and the Joe late PJ. And PJ Duke, yeah, yes. Yeah. So you started to come right from then on, because up to that, uh, the impression I get reading back on it uh, was that the, ca- the Kerry forwards were walking through you, in a sense. Well, I'll tell you, certainly the reflexes were much faster than ours, and I don't know why. I couldn't tell you, in spite of the fact that uh, the team were kept together for so long before the match, and that was the prior training, yeah. the, the whole idea of keeping us on the plane together and all this sort of thing. But having said that, I would say that in the first 10 or 15 minutes, Cavan were in a different world altogether. But So it was a great comeback then? Oh, well, it was a wonderful comeback. It was a wonderful comeback. But, of course, we had great half-forwards. But they were very good half-forwards, like Tony Ty and Mick Higgins were, were super. There was such a change in the trend of the game that Cavan went in at half-time a point in front, and Mick Higgins was the one who put them into the lead. I remember coming down, we were well behind, and I remember coming down and I got a pass from Tony Ty, and... <clears throat> Two of the Kerry fellas came for me and I went one and I sidestepped the two of them and I was about 25 to 30 yards out and I said to myself, a pint isn't much good, here's a chance for a goal. And I let bang and I got into the corner of the net, O'Keefe died for it and just got his hand to it, but I got into the corner of the net and I'd say it helped the turning of the game too. But it could be said that what finally sealed Kerry's fate was Peter Donoghue's free-taking. Peter Donoghue was absolutely deadly with the freeze, and every point he was getting, it was been uh, certainly the Americans loved it anyway. And I think he was so big in stature, uh, he was such a gentleman really playing the game, that uh, the American people, the Irish-Americans, just took to him. And rightly so. Peter was kicking, he kicked, I don't know how many pints he kicked off, off, off the, uh, from freeze that day. Peter was a big, bustling man, a grand footballer and a grand... A grand type, grand character and uh, oh he, he fully deserved the adulation he subsequently got. Well it was just something that uh, well I, I always fancied taking freeze anyway you know and practiced it plenty and uh, we, we decided how, even that we'd take any chances came our way like you know and that we wouldn't start uh, looking for goals if they weren't there you know and trying and of course one by one we got into the game and then we got the goals, a couple of goals, to even things out a bit, you know. And they came just before half-time? They came which before half-time, so that put us a point in the lead at yeah. half-time. So we were fairly confident at half-time that we were going to get there. Now Kerry supporters were really worried, but it was nothing to Michael O'Hare's anxiety late in the match. As we approached five minutes to five, I looked at my watch and I discovered that there was about ten minutes left in the game. And there was every possibility and every justification for somebody somewhere along the line with a piece of paper in front of him that said, disconnect polo grounds at five o'clock. Every indication that he might just pull out a plug and cut the broadcast off five minutes from the end. And I began quite innocently saying, if there's anybody along the way there listening in, just give us five minutes more. And I kept begging for this five minutes more. There was a song at the time, give me five minutes more. But I kept begging for this, and 
Whether it was that somebody along the way heard the appeal, I don't know. But the five minutes was left on and the entire All-Ireland final from the polo grounds was heard here in Ireland. In the end, Cavan won by four points, much to the distress of the Kerry people who were wondering what happened. Listen to Bat Garvey. Well, I'll tell you, many of those Irish immigrants who had just gone to America, I had, I felt sad for them because they could not even speak after the match. They only wanted champions. They never expected Kerry to lose. And I, I think it was like a wake, an Irish wake. And, of course, mo- most of those were, were all Kerry men. I suppose there were more Kerry well, men in New York than anything. Uh, well, uh, were, the ones we knew, yeah. the fellows we knew were Kerry. So at least Kirk created a record, or Cavan created a record by winning in all Ireland. But I think we Kerry created a record also by losing the only All Ireland that was ever played outside of Ireland. Not a nice distinction. Yeah, I know. Uh, D- Dinny Lyon said to me one time when I was talking to him not long ago that afterwards some of the Kerry people were saying, "Were you drunk or what?" <laughs> I know what Dinny Lyon said. Did he? Did one time to Sean Kerry, Sean Kelly, who is now the Kerry. County Board Chairman. Sean Kelly asked Diddy what happened in the polo grounds. And Diddy said, it was the women, Sean. <laughs> it was the black women. So he, we lost the game. So now in Kerry, when they talk about Black 47... People are confused because they don't know whether we're talking about the 47 All Ireland final in New York or the famine in 1847. So Cavan won their third championship and there was never another All Ireland senior final taken outside the country. But this historic one brought the GAA a profit of over £10,000, a substantial sum 50 years ago. But was that enough to justify bringing such an important game to America? Joe Cahan and Simon Dagnan had different views about bringing the final to New York. It was artificial in the sense that it wasn't Croke Park. We were 3,000 miles away from home and there was an atmosphere completely different to what we were used to. I remember immediately before we went out in the field the day Patrick O'Keefe came into Croke, into the dressing room in the polo grounds and he said that he wanted an exhibition of football, you know, something that the Yanks would remember. In other words, to depart from our usual brand of football. Now, I think I got the feeling that his remarks were directed to me, particularly, you see, but I'm sure they weren't. But, I mean, I, my own, I, I had to leave my own particular brand of football behind me in the sense that, well, I believe in, in not taking prisoners at any stage in my career. And I'm not saying that boastfully or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's just an expression to prove that I wanted to win at all times. But... Uh, Somehow or other, he didn't tell the captain for that because I do remember that Tony Ty came in with a ball one time and normally I would have, you know, hit him a fair shoulder. But this time I refrained listening to the, the, the wisdom, the wise words of the late Padre and he got a goal out of it. There was something very different about the All-Ireland in, in uh, New York. Uh, in my opinion, it was the greatest showpiece that ever was for our game of football. We were all very conscious of the fact that 
Uh, we were supposed to be ambassadors of Ireland out in the famous city of New York. And I think it is also fair to say that uh, we were there to give of our very best. Uh, we may have even, some of our, the officials may have even suggested to us that we make sure that we do just that. And I think it is uh, a very fair comment to say it was the greatest game that I played, ever played in. And I have no doubt about it that Kerry players, the Kerry players of that particular time, sad though it might have been to lose it, and, uh, well, it was one particular All-Ireland that, of course, I will always remember, but uh, the Kerry players themselves would say that it was the best game they ever played in.